Hello and welcome to the Save Winter podcast powered by Hydro-Quebec, a series where we explore the intersection of climate change and winter sports. My name is Thomas Potter. I'm the manager of Legacy and Sustainability for Lake Placid 2023, your host for this show, and a native of Lake Placid, New York, the winter sports capital of the world. Now, I wasn't alive in 1980 to see the Winter Olympics for myself, but I grew up skiing and skating on the same snow and ice as those Olympians and the many world-class athletes who followed. This coming January, New York's North Country region will be hosting the Lake Placid 2023 FISU World University Games, welcoming over 2,500 athletes from 54 countries and 600 universities. The event will actually be twice as large as the 1980 Winter Olympics that put us on the map. It's been over 40 years since those games, and a lot's changed since then. How has climate change affected the landscape of winter sports? What does winter look like for us now compared to then? What will happen to the winter sports capital of the world if we lose our natural ice and snow? And how are these climate trends affecting communities and athletes alike? Join me for our first conversation about ice as I chat with experts who are researching, making, and maintaining both natural and artificial ice. To begin our exploration of this topic, I thought we should educate ourselves on how serious the problem is in the first place. So I spoke with Professor Robert McClemon from the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. Professor McClemon not only researches natural ice, but he's also started a website called RinkWatch that's a hub of citizen science observations from across the continent. Since its launch in January 2013, RinkWatch has collected information about outdoor skating rinks from volunteers across North America. People with outdoor skating rinks in their backyards or neighborhood parks are invited to pin the location of the rink on an interactive map at rinkwatch.org and then throughout the winter report on skating conditions. The RinkWatch research team is able to aggregate the data and compare them with local weather station data to determine key temperature thresholds for building and maintaining a skatable ice surface. Starting in the winter of 2019-2020, they launched the Rink Sentinels program, in which participants work with a RinkWatch researcher throughout the winter to collect detailed information about rink conditions, daily ice conditions, and the impacts of rain, snow, and other weather on the skating system. This allows for a deeper understanding of how site-specific conditions and climate affect these outdoor rinks. What Professor McClemon and his team discovered is that winters are less stable and predictable than they were in the past. We have a lot of data from a lot of sources showing that winters in North America are trending towards milder temperatures in general, uh, later starts, uh, so winter in many parts of North America not really getting going until November, December, or even January, uh, and earlier springs with a lot of temperature variability throughout the winter, so a lot of freeze-thaw cycles. Uh, and that's documented through U.S. Uh, National Weather Service records. It's been done through um, climate models uh, for Canada and the United States. Uh, and it's uh, showing up already in terms of reports of skiing conditions, skating conditions, snowmobiling conditions, and a lot of other outdoor activities that take place in wintertime where we are seeing changes in um, people's ability to do those activities for as long or as often as they used to. So we're not only seeing shorter seasons for our favorite winter activities, 
We're also seeing more disruptions in the form of freeze-thaw cycles during those short seasons. I asked him what this meant for us a generation or two down the line. And so what that means is that 50 or 60 years from now, a lot of the things that we take for granted about winter uh, may not be there. So, for example, in many parts of the United States, Minnesota, uh, New England, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, around the, the upper part of New York State and Michigan and so on, people love to build outdoor skating rinks. They love to play pond hockey. They like to go skiing in the wintertime. Uh, 50 or 60 years from now into the future, that may not be possible because the winter simply will not be cold enough or they may not be cold enough long enough to really make those activities viable. So broadly speaking, the experts agree on what the future will look like for us. Why then is it so difficult for us to agree on making the sweeping changes necessary in both policy and our daily lives to prevent the problems that we can see on the horizon? I posed this question to Professor McLemon, and he offered an interesting perspective. Yes, it's, uh, it, it, it is an interesting way to look at how climate change affects us, because, you know, when we talk about it in the media, uh, and you see it on TV or in social media t about climate change, the examples that are given are often ones that are not too uh, observable to the average person in North America. So, for example, you read stories about polar bears losing their habitat in the Arctic, or we hear about glaciers in the mountains that are disappearing, or we hear about small islands in the Pacific uh, that are you know, starting to disappear under rising sea levels. These things are actually happening, but the problem is that your average North American is not going to experience you know, a polar bear, a glacier, or a Pacific island. But when you point to examples like the local ski hill or the local backyard rink, then people can make a visual and tangible connection to it. It's the things we're going to miss and don't want to commit to nostalgia. Uh, and you're right. I mean, especially in the northern parts of the U.S. and much of Canada, uh, skating on a pond or a backyard rink, that's part of growing up. And you're, you're right in that the National Hockey League, for example, is really concerned about this because the origins of the sport are on backyard rinks and on frozen ponds. It would be equivalent to if you imagine that somehow, you know, neighborhood playgrounds with basketball courts somehow disappeared for whatever reason or kids no longer had access to go out and shoot hoops, uh, you know, in the neighborhood park or in the driveway kind of thing. You know, where would the next generation of basketball players come from? It would only be from the families or the kids who are fortunate enough to uh, play in organized leagues, in gymnasiums and so on. So the National Hockey League has a similar concern about the sport of hockey, that if it's only accessible to, you know, wealthier kids from kids from wealthier families whose parents can afford to enroll them in, in organized hockey that takes place in, um, in indoor arenas, then the sport itself starts to suffer. So these are some of the issues that start to emerge. How does RinkWatch work exactly? It's a citizen science project, we refer to it. So uh, what we did was we created a website with an online interactive map, and we invited people who had a rink, a uh, skating rink in their backyard or in their neighborhood park to go onto the website to pin the location of that rink on the map, and then throughout the winter provide us updates on the skating conditions on their rink. Uh, and uh, by doing so, we hope to gather a whole bunch of data and find out what are the critical temperatures and weather conditions necessary to have a skatable ice surface. 
Uh, now, everybody, you know, everybody who's done high school science knows that water freezes once it's colder than 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius. And while that's true, to have a skating rink, a really hard surface that will support your weight and, and allow kids and, and adults to skate on it, it actually needs to be much colder. You need average temperatures at about minus five degrees Celsius or down into the 20s in terms of Fahrenheit uh, temperatures. And so by doing so, we can um, we now know the critical thresholds to have a skatable rink. And then what we can do is we can go back through the weather records and see how trends have changed in terms of outdoor skating, or we can make forecasts into the future. Have there been any unexpected outcomes of starting RinkWatch? We've created a community of people who are interested in the science of skating. And so we have programs where people provide even additional data to us uh, so that we can know how to better uh, improve, you know, the building of outdoor skating rinks. So it's, it's quite exciting and quite accessible to the general public. And, and over the last almost decade or so, we've had more than 1,600 different households uh, participate in the program. Do you think we'll see refrigeration in more outdoor rinks? It's already starting to happen. You're absolutely right. I mean, what's happened, what used to take place, like when I was a kid here in Canada, is that the cities would put out the materials to build rinks in all the neighborhood parks and the school grounds and so on. And neighborhood volunteers would assemble the, the boards and flood the rink. Uh, and get it going and then it would go all winter long but because temperatures are getting milder and winters are shorter what's happening is you build a rink you flood it uh, and what happens is you get it going and then you get a little warm spell in january or february and what happens is the water all melts away and you have to start again from scratch and so it becomes frustrating for a lot of folks who are trying to build rinks and especially the the, the city governments that are putting these out for public use and so what we're seeing is in many cities, they're starting to transition to re artificial refrigerated ice surfaces, which are more expensive to operate. But by doing so, you can build a rink that will survive those midwinter warm spells that, uh, that are becoming more frequent. What this means is that major cities in Canada are able to provide fewer rinks in the public parks, resulting in fewer places to go skating. But it also means that with the added refrigeration, there'll be skatable ice even on milder days. It's likely the trend will continue into the future. However, that ice is no longer being provided by the grace of Mother Nature. Now there's an additional hard cost in electric utilities, refrigerants, etc. So I wonder, what do winter sports represent to you? Well, winter sports have huge cultural importance in Canada and northern parts of the U.S. Um, you know, winters are long and cold and dark and you know there's not a lot of opportunities to do things that you can in the summertime and so on a really cold day in january there's nothing better than going out onto the local pond or the local rink putting on your skates and going around on the on the ice and hearing the the metal on the on the ice that distinctive sound that it makes or the sound of hockey sticks and pucks and and you know we've done research on why people uh, build outdoor rinks in the first place. And what we found that, you know, it's one of those things that families do together. Uh, you know, the grandparents will get out on the ice, the neighbors will get together. So it's a real opportunity for communities to bond with one another. Uh, and so uh, it, it would be a real shame if we were to lose that uh, in terms of an opportunity for people to get together. And for youth fitness as well. We want kids outside skating, not in their basements playing NHL on their video games and so on. We want them with a stick in their hands and skates on their feet. 
for me personally, uh, I still have lots of fond memories when I was a kid of skating on the creek out behind the house where I grew up and skating on the, the rink at, at the school I attended. Uh, and so my own kid, you know, when she was young, that's one of the things that we would do together is go skating together. So while I like all outdoor uh, activities, summer and winter, I think that for the winter ones, just simply going skating on a nice cold day, uh, it really can't be beat. Thank you, Professor McClemon, and we look forward to hearing from you in person during the FISU World Conference in Lake Placid, January 2023. Next, I turn to an expert a bit closer to home. I met with Dr. Brendan Wiltsey, Senior Research Scientist at the Paul Smiths College and researcher for the Adirondack Watershed Institute. His research crew does a lot of water research during the warm seasons, but also drills down through the ice to understand what's going on underneath. What they've noticed is that the duration in which it's safe to go out on the ice is getting shorter, an average of three weeks shorter. And so we're drilling through ice to get to the water below to take measurements of what's happening beneath the ice uh, on our lakes here in the Adirondacks. But we are interested in the ice itself, and that's for a number of different ecological and sort of social cultural reasons. Uh, a big thing that we're seeing in our region and in fact across the Northern Hemisphere is a reduction in ice cover on lakes. And we have data, for example, Mirror Lake in the village of Lake Placid, uh, there's ice cover data going back to 1903. Folks that live around the lake have been recording when the ice forms and when it goes off. And we can see that over that period of time, the average duration of ice cover on Mirror Lake is about three weeks shorter since the beginning of the beginning of the 1900s. And so that's a pretty significant reduction in the duration of ice cover. And that's a pattern that we see on other lakes in the Adirondacks. We have also data from right on campus here, Lower St. Regis Lake, a colleague of mine has been keeping that record. And then there's others throughout the Adirondacks that are keeping records, lake associations, other universities, and so on and so forth. So this is a pattern we're seeing consistently in all of these water bodies as a reduction in ice cover. And so we are actively collecting that data. Right now, it's mid-April, the ice just went out on, a, on most of the lakes in the Adirondacks, and we're out there you know, writing down in a notebook uh, exactly what day that occurred on different water bodies. In recent years, Brendan and his researchers have become interested in not only the duration of the ice, but also thickness. Thickness has ecological implications, but also recreational impacts for ice fishing, skating, snowmobiling, and even skiing. It becomes more dangerous to be out on. Obviously, you're going to be impacted if there's a shorter duration of ice cover on the lake, but you're going to be really impacted if the thickness of that ice is, is reducing over time and it's more dangerous to be out on. And so that's data we don't, we don't have a lot of that data. And so we've really been collecting it over the last four or five years, and that's not enough to see you know, patterns or trends at this point. But it's something we're really interested in because we know that it affects the, the people of the Adirondack, you know, in a really significant way. If folks can't go out ice fishing because it's unsafe or they're falling through on their snowmobiles or, you know, any of the other things that they're doing, that's really going to impact, um, you know, the people of this region and, and potentially our economy and, and everything else as well. The big one is I've noticed that... Uh sometime in the recent past you know definitely since like my childhood i've seen that the toboggan shoot on mirror lake got a major overhaul you know some money went into rebuilding that thing 
but now they're dealing with the consequences of um, a shorter season effectively, right? But then also what you're trying to uncover is the usable ice, right? We need a certain thickness. Do you have any information on what is generally a, like a safe thickness of ice? Paulsmith College and the Watershed Institute, we don't give specific recommendations around that, but I will tell you what other people say. Sure. Um, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation says four inches of clear ice. And so there is a different quality of ice as well. And, and people don't always understand that. So the clear ice is the stuff that's actually formed from the lake water freezing solid. You'll get opaque ice on a lake as well. And that's typically formed when you have snowfall on the surface of the lake and then it warms up or maybe it rains and that snow becomes saturated and then that freezes. And that opaque ice is not nearly as strong as that nice clear ice. And why is that? So there's a lot of air in it, which is why it's opaque. So the clear ice is like, looks like a, well, you actually even a lot of times with your ice cubes in your freezer come out a little bit opaque. So they have air trapped inside of them, but that clear ice is going to be free of, of most air bubbles. Uh, whereas the opaque stuff, because it was once snow, you can imagine there's all this, these little air spaces in among it and it's gotten saturated to a point, but it's not turned a hundred percent to liquid water before it froze. And so therefore, basically it's just less dense, it's less structurally sound. For the ecology of lakes too, it's, it's less, less light through. So that can change what's happening underneath the ice as well in terms of what sort of organisms are right below the ice surface and what they're doing and all of those sorts of things. So are you seeing a shift in the composition too? We try to make note of that when we're drilling holes in ice, but again, we've been really paying attention to this over the last five years, so it's hard to say. We also record the amount of snow over top of the ice because that, that can be important as well. There people have been noting just whether a lake or a pond is frozen for, you know, over a hundred years in this area, but to actually record the thickness is something that we just don't have really good data on. And, and we're not only collecting it ourselves, but this past winter, we started asking the public to send that data into us. And so we have an app on your phone that if you're out ice fishing or doing any recreating for any other reason on a water body and you are drilling a hole through to check the thickness, uh, you can open up an app on your phone. You, you can plug in how thick the ice is. And then we also ask for how thick the snow cover is. I also know that there has historically been a huge problem with salinity in Mirror Lake because it's a bowl, right? Like I see your background right now, actually. It's, it's an aerial shot of Mirror Lake. And for anyone who's not familiar with the area, it's surrounded entirely by a road, Mirror Lake Drive, right? And they have main street that runs along one side of it goes around there's hotels and then there's private residences that run along the back but you know those roads are maintained and plowed and historically it's been plowed and salted which means salt has run into this lake and it kind of has nowhere to go do you study the chemistry of these bodies of water and have you noticed any discrepancies from i guess any kind of factors for like ice cover between like mirror lake lake flower awi the, the watershed institute and in partnership with the Osceola river association since uh, 2015. And mirror lake is really unique be like you said especially in the adirondack region to have so much development around it so much salt goes down it goes into a stormwater system 
that up until recently just flowed literally from the street through a pipe to the lake. So it's like a direct shot of whatever gets put on our roads. And that's not just salt, that's also, you know, oil and rubber from car tires, your cigarette butts, anything else that, you know, people are throwing on the street is gonna end up there. People have asked me, you know, Mirror Lake has a, this reputation of being in one of the saltier lakes in the area, and it's done some weird things to the physical structure of the lake. It's not mixing completely in the springtime because we have a salty layer at the bottom that forms over the winter. Does not, we've done the math on how much it would depress the freezing point of water. And if folks have asked, well, is the duration of ice cover on Mirror Lake the result of the fact that it's getting saltier and so the water isn't freezing, you know, or it takes more colder temperatures to freeze, and that's not the case. The reduction in ice cover on Mirror Lake is 100% driven by climate change, not the road salt that's going into the lake. What about you? How do you connect with the Adirondacks, the physical surroundings? I think uh, everyone that lives here, you gotta like being outside and enjoying this beautiful landscape in some way. I ice fish a little, it's not my main thing. My partner actually loves it and I go out with her and, and we do that, but I ski and backcountry ski and you know all of those sorts of things in the winter time. It is troubling to think of what this landscape will look like in a, you know, a warmer future where those things are gonna be more challenging to do. It's not enough to just worry about the mitigation of climate change, but also the resiliency of the damage that's already here. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Is that something that you've seen or thought about in your kind of studies? Yeah, it's not something I work a lot on now, but when I was at the Off-Sable River Association, that's a big part of their work on sort of the river side of things. And they do, so they do a lot of river restoration work. The Adirondack landscape was hugely impacted in the logging era. I mean, what you're looking at behind me was pretty much clear cut, not once, but up to three times, depending on sort of where in this picture you're looking. And those logs were driven down the rivers, the rivers were modified to, to accommodate that. And so the Alsable River Association is putting a lot of effort into rebuilding the structure of the river, which does make it more resilient for things that climate change are gonna threat us, like big rain events. And we saw that with Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. And that really raised awareness of folks in our area that we do have to look at resilience of our communities and our infrastructure. Given your assessment of the ice quality, where do you see things going? It sounds like there's not a whole lot of alternatives explored for people who use the ice. Yet, at least, it's hard to conceptualize how to deal with, how to bake in that resiliency into people's plans. How do you see things going in the context well, of sports, I would say? Well, I think for the winter sports, it's going to have to be sort of probably more and more artificial surfaces and, and snow and those sorts of things. Because, you know, unless we really start taking climate change seriously as a planet, we are, well, we're on a trajectory that we can't change. And then, you know, that where that trajectory goes depends on the decisions that we make 
you know, as a whole over the next decade or so. But even the path that we're currently on, you know, we're going to see less ice, things like pond hockey and, and all of those things are going to be impacted, you know, and the amount of snow at white face to ski on and backcountry skiing and all these different things. We know that this is going to be influenced by climate change. And I think, you know, I'm not keyed into the winter sports management at really at all, but I do see, you know, the Olympic Regional Development Authority putting more more investment into snowmaking at all of their facilities. And, you know, they're rebuilding the Olympic Oval. And, and obviously that has been a cool outdoor track, I think, for its for its history but so they're clearly thinking about this stuff they know that that's what's going to be coming down the pike so from like the competitive sports side i guess there's investments going in to have those things continue but it's all the other types of sports that don't you can't do that right you can't artificially freeze a lake so someone can go ice fishing in the winter time and if you're into backcountry skiing, we're not blowing snow out in the middle of the high peaks to make the, you know, the sides of mountains skiable. So all of those things are, you know, I'm sure going to change. So we seem to be alienating winter sports from the actual season of winter. We have indoor hockey rinks, indoor figure skating, indoor ski resorts are gaining popularity. And so Brendan wondered, you know, where are we getting that energy from because if we're if it's not from a renewable source or if it's coming from fossil fuels we're sort of we're racing to fix the problem locally by creating a bigger problem globally it's easy to mention all of the things that we see disappearing right before our very eyes it's more difficult but still very important to identify any successes that we've made along the way and I asked Brendan for his thoughts on the matter. Well, there's the work of organizations like the Off-Sable River Association that are helping make our communities more resilient to climate change. I think the climate change messaging from scientists is getting better. People are, I do feel like are understanding it more and more and also seeing how it actually affects their daily lives. And that's for me, like looking at the lake ice stuff and talking to folks that you know, they might not have really be quote unquote believers in climate change, although it's not something that you need to believe in. But when you start talking to them in a way that really relates to their, their lives and the things that they're interested in, you know, that starts to build the connections. And so I think more and more people are recognizing our work because it seems to be a sad story over and over again. But I, you know, for me, I always look for the bright spots, the things that are improving. Mirror Lake behind me is getting less salty now because we've been talking to the community about the, what's been happening to that lake and they've been putting effort in to reduce their salt use. And, you know, I think we're starting to see some of that with climate change as well. So, you know, these are big, big challenging problems to address, but I do think we're capable of addressing them and I, I'm hopeful that we will and that we will still have some type of winter here in the Adirondacks for many years to come. Uh, it might not be exactly the way it is today, but hopefully people are still skiing down the trails of, of white face and in the backcountry and out on our lakes and ponds in the wintertime fishing and skating. Then I'm glad I could share, you know, some of the work that we're doing here at, at Paulsmus College to study this right in our own backyard. And with that, we'll conclude our first conversation about ice and the intersection of climate change and winter sports. I want to thank Professor McClemon, Dr. Wiltsey, and my colleague Cameron Harris for their contributions to this episode. Join us for our next episode, where we'll speak with the experts about indoor ice 
and the intricacies of making and maintaining those beautiful rinks that have delivered so many unforgettable moments in sports history. From the Olympics to the Pee Wee League, from curling to hockey, memories, connections, and careers are made at these rinks. So we hope to dive a little deeper into what makes this all possible. I hope you've enjoyed our first look into how New York does winter. From the sustainability and legacy team for the Lake Placid 2023 FISU World University Games, thank you for listening to the Safe Winter Podcast.